0: Welcome to It's Not a Crisis. I am your host, Doran Wallach. I'm an entrepreneur, a mother of two, a wife, and a 40-something trying to figure out what is happening in this decade. Why is no one talking about it? I created this podcast to help women in their late 30s and 40s to figure out what is going on in our mind, body, soul, and life. We may laugh, we may cry, we may get frustrated, but most importantly, my goal is to make this next chapter of life positive. I'm also full of my own questions, and I'm here to go on this journey with you, so let's do it together. Hello, my amazing, wonderful listeners. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. 100% genuine. Today, we're going to be talking about sexual dysfunction in women, because how often do we talk about that? Never ever. It's just not discussed. This is discussed about men all the time. We see commercials. It is a, I think I I quoted in the podcast, a $3.2 billion industry. And there are a lot of women suffering. And there are a lot of women not talking to each other, not talking to their doctors. And we need to change this. We need to make a difference. It's, It's my goal to make women feel more comfortable about talking about this with their doctors. So I got one of the best Dr. Anita Clayton was referred to me by Dr. Cohen from Mass General Hospital who was on my other podcast and I'm just very very excited to have her here today. Anita Clayton MD is the David C. Wilson professor and chair of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences and professor of clinical obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Virginia. She has published over 200 peer-reviewed papers and was named to the 2019-2020 Best Doctors in America list. She has focused her clinical practice and research on major depressive disorder, principal investigator for essentially all the newer antidepressants since 1990, including medications with new mechanisms of action, dosing paradigms, and rapid action. Mood disorders associated with reproductive life events in women, PMDD, postpartum depression, perimenopausal mood disorders with a focus on effective diagnosis and treatment, sexual dysfunction, SD, and other adverse effects of illness and medications, depression, antidepressant therapy, sexual dysfunction associated with breast cancer treatment, and algorithmic management of SD. Sexual disorders, nomenclature classification, measurement of SD including changes in sexual functioning questionnaire, the sexual interest and desire inventory, and the decreased sexual desire screener and treatment of sexual disorders, e.g. family orgasmic disorder, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, including the full development program for flibanserin, flibanserin, I have no idea if I pronounced that right, but the first FDA-approved medication for HSDD. I'm going to say flibanserin. (laughs) Sorry, but I don't know how to pronounce it, and I can't find it anywhere, so. Dr. Clayton co-edited Women's Mental Health, a comprehensive textbook and authored Satisfaction, Women's Sex and the Quest for Intimacy for the General Public. She is an international leader in female sexual dysfunction, as the president of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, as vice chair for women's sexual health for the third and fourth international consultation on sexual medicine, on the World Health Organization Advisory Committee, on the ICD-11 chapter, Conditions Related to Sexual Health, and the Scientific Program Committee for the International Society for Sexual Medicine. She has served on the board for directors of the American Society for Clinical Psychopharmacology and the program committee co-chair and is a member of numerous adversary boards for the pharmaceutical industry in the treatment of depression and sexual dysfunctions, and she occasionally writes a blog for the Huffington Post. Needless to say, she is quite qualified, and I am very, very honored to have Dr. Clayton here today. I am so thrilled to be able to bring this topic out to the public today. Not that it's not out there, but um, I think we need more knowledge and education. Sexual female dysfunction. It's just one of these topics that is brushed under the rug for women our age. And yet everywhere you turn, you see commercials for erectile dysfunction, which, by the way, is a $3.2 billion industry. What? is happening. I just I'm I I'm very passionate about this topic. I I feel for women who don't feel that they're able to discuss this even with their closest friends or doctors. So I am very honored today to have Dr. Clayton here to speak with me. Dr. Clayton, thank you for being here and thank you for bringing awareness to a topic that again, like I just mentioned, women are afraid to talk about.
1: Well, thank you for bringing it to the public's attention as well.
0: Yes. And so our audience is late 30s and 40s some a little bit beyond. And I, I know nothing about this topic. I, I have to be honest with you. Um, I'm, I'm counting on you to, to 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 let us all know. And that's part of what I do with this podcast is if I have a subject that I'm really interested in, and I don't feel that I know um, a lot about it, or my listeners will reach out to me and say, Hey, can you please bring on somebody to talk about this? This is something that I have gotten over and over and over again, and and the fact that my listeners feel confident enough to to trust me and reach out to me and say, "Hey, I have this problem and I don't know what to do about it," really makes me feel that I need to help them. And so, I, I think the best place to start are, um, you know, what what are the most common sexual dysfunctions that are affecting this population, and if you can explain a little bit. Uh, because again, I'm clueless.
1: Sure. There was a study that was done that tried to look at the prevalence rate of the sexual dysfunctions that we were talking about under DSM IV. So, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is the, sort of the guidance that we use for criteria for various diagnoses. And actually, currently, sexual dysfunctions fall under mental health diagnoses. That's going to change soon with the ICD-11, the international classification of disorders, and sexual function is going to have its own chapter related more to sexual health uh, than dysfunction. But we have looked at what the dysfunctions are, and the most common one is called hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD. It occurs in about 10% of U.S. women, and that looks like similarly around the globe, or higher rates in some places around the globe. And basically this is low sexual desire that is distressing to the woman. It bothers her. If you have a low level of sexual desire and that's just fine with you, then that's not a disorder at all. Or if you've never had significant sexual desire and that's sort of what you know about yourself, that is also not necessarily distressing and not a disorder. So, what what is the difference? I I
0: understand, and, and I and I assume this. Yeah, I, there are women who have been married a long time and don't have any sexual desire for their partners. I, I understand that that's that that is a different thing altogether. But I think that they they almost don't even know. Is it my partner? Is it me? How do you decipher the difference in that? When you're talking to a woman who said, I have like zero sexual desire.
1: Sure. So what I would tell you is that is a question that a lot of people ask. And the FDA asked us to develop a screener for this. It's called the Decreased Sexual Desire Screener. It's available online. So people could go there and look at that and see what it says. And it basically asks four questions about, you know, did you ever have what you considered adequate sexual desire, is it low now and um, is that distressing to you and do you want to do something about it? And those are yes-no responses. So obviously if you say yes to those, you probably meet criteria for HSDD. The fifth question has to do with potential etiologies or causes of the low sexual desire. And that is really very individualized for particular women. So it could be that you had some kind of surgery or your body image is off or you have a medical condition that's causing you problems that you're, you're focused on. A whole variety of potentially modifiable factors, as we think about it, that might be able to be addressed and take care of this low desire. And this is basically acquired HSDD, which is really the only type that might be treatable with medications or therapy. And so that means that previously you had desire that you considered adequate or satisfying to you, and that desire has been lost. What I will tell you is that this is a common problem in women between 30 and 50 in terms of low desire that's very distressing. But interestingly, the rates of HSDD are pretty consistent across the lifespan, and that's because as more women experience low desire after the menopause, They're less distressed about it for some of the reasons you just said, that uh, they've been in a relationship for a long time, they're comfortable with that, their partner's having sexual dysfunction, and that may contribute to reduced frequency of sexual activity, a whole variety of other factors that impact um, that may also be modifiable. Uh, that's so interesting. And thank you for clarifying that, because
0: I think that that's probably very confusing to most women in their head. What exactly is this that's going on? The second dysfunction that you were going to mention, and and uh, I have this here because we spoke a little bit before, is FSAD. Can you explain what that is, please?
1: So that's female sexual arousal dysfunction. And that is essentially where Uh, there are both genital and systemic aspects of arousal that are negatively affected. That particularly happens as women approach the menopausal transition and menopause because we have lowered levels of estrogen, lowered levels of testosterone. So be aware, women also have testosterone. It's just our levels are much lower than men's. And um, we don't necessarily have adequate estrogenation, essentially, or adequate estrogen effects on our vagina that would allow us to have comfortable sex. So we don't get as lubricated. Um, We may respond to lubricants or things like that, but not always. And Sometimes that's associated with some pain, although sexual pain disorders are often separate from that. This is really called genitourinary syndrome of menopause if you have this develop as a result of your changing hormones at the menopausal transition. What also happens, though, is that we see decrease in desire that's related to both the drop in testosterone and estrogen. We can see reduced sensitivity, for example, uh, nipple sensitivity or other erotic feelings that we have with touch to other parts of our body. And we also may experience diminished response after Um, we actually get somewhat aroused. That is, we may have a decrease in the frequency of orgasm or we may have a decrease in the intensity or duration of an orgasm afterwards. And so arousal, is sort of the next step after you have desire, but they all feed back on each other. So female sexual arousal dysfunction in younger women is often caused by birth control pills. So it's sort of Murphy's Law of Sex, that the thing that allows you to have sex without worrying necessarily about getting pregnant may also contribute to particularly arousal problems and then potentially orgasmic or desire problems as well.
0: I mean, doesn't that just cover the story of being a woman?
1: We can't win. We can't win. (laughs) Well, because people aren't thinking about necessarily our pleasure as opposed to function in some way. I mean, women can have sex even when they don't really want it. They can have sex if they're not feeling that aroused. And they can have sex if they don't have an orgasm and that's just not true for men you talked about erectile dysfunction i mean if you can't get an erection you generally are not having the kind of sex that men are used to or want or think about but for women we are in a very different circumstance in our view on the world and that may also impact our priorities in particular i would say and then where we put sex on our list of things to do or things to be focused on or things to demand. I I think a lot of women
0: talk about, and I know through girlfriends, we're like, God, if I could just orgasm like a guy, you know, (laughs) sorry to use use the term, but just rub one out in the shower real quick. (laughs) You know, Um, it doesn't come that easily to a lot of women uh, and nor do we, really have the time. But the next thing you talk about is uh female org- orgasmic dysfunction, FOD. And I think that something you just mentioned, um, I think a lot of women feel guilty if they don't orgasm during sex. And um, I know a lot of women that don't orgasm during sex, but I think it's a common thing. And so thank you for explaining that a little bit more, that that's not a total, I'm not sure the word I'm looking for, but not a loss, but Th- that is normal, I guess is what I'm
1: asking you. It's common. Common. But maybe we can do something about that. Some of that stems from the idea that the only legitimate orgasm is one that occurs during sexual intercourse. We're not necessarily designed where that might always be the case. Also, younger women who've had less frequent sex may have more difficulty achieving an orgasm, too, Or they may not know the places that need to be touched or need to be stimulated or how those need to be stimulated in order to potentially achieve that. And that's where masturbation can really help or certainly exploring your genitalia can really be helpful in trying to sort that out or knowing that it's really oral sex that's going to be most successful for you to have an orgasm or some other kind of sexual interaction.
0: I think my question is, is if you're having traditional sex and, and, and a penis, you know, doesn't make you orgasm, but you know that you can orgasm in different ways in the bedroom with your partner,
1: is that uncommon? No, I think that's quite common. Okay. And I think one of the issues is communication about that. Yes. I think women tend to not want to say out of shame or some other cultural or religious prohibitions on women seeking sexual pleasure and they also don't necessarily want to hurt their partner's feelings by saying I want it this way. And there are ways to say that and probably not right in the middle of sexual activity. Right. <laughs> Probably not the best time. No. Set aside a time when you want to talk about it and say, I've been thinking about it, and I'd like us to try this and explore this for me, because I think that that may be better for me in terms of having an orgasm or something along those lines. And partners, believe it or not, in in the U.S. and Western Europe— We are really in a partner-centered culture, meaning your partner wants to please you. Your partner wants you to be happy with the sexual activity. They feel better. They want that emotional intimacy that comes with orgasm between partners as opposed to just okay a reproductive related culture where you know the man is supposed to ejaculate and that's kind of the end of it
0: and i'd like to touch on this a little bit later but i think there are a lot of women that don't know what they need <laughs> you know they and and i and i don't I, I assume there are resources out there but i think a lot of women who uh, you know have been with a partner for many 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 years almost don't know what they need you know if, if there are women who have had many sexual partners, they probably have a little bit more of an idea. Where do they figure that out? How do they figure that out? And I know that that's something we're going to discuss later. So just going back to um, how a woman figures that out, do you have advice for that? Or, or are there people that help to um, help a woman? I assume there are resources online.
1: So there are a limited number of sex therapists, sexual medicine providers, and psychotherapists that uh, work with, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness, which are the two types of therapy that might be helpful for both hypoactive sexual desire disorder and female sexual arousal dysfunction.
0: There are not that many of them in the U.S. I know this. I know, you know, I've only the only place I've ever heard about is Maze when it comes to this topic, but... I have had friends who actually had reached out to a couple places. This is a conversation I had about two years ago with a friend of mine. And, and they said, that, I mean, there's nobody. I think there's also embarrassment that comes with it. I think it's very difficult for a woman to seek out this kind of help. Not every woman, but it's embarrassing. And, you know, to, to, to make that first move is probably very hard.
1: Yeah, so that is actually a great point. You know, providers are actually poorly educated about talking to patients about their sexual functioning, their sexual activity, changes in what's happening in their sexual lives. So we don't learn that in medical school. We usually don't learn it in residency. And so providers are also uncomfortable with this topic area. And so we don't bring it up. But it's really pretty important for your provider to bring that up. And I would say for a woman, your OBGYN who's doing routine exams of you and maybe providing birth control for you really should assume you're probably having sex if you're on birth control or if you had a baby or things like that. So they really should be talking about that. And if they're not, we probably do have to bring up something about it. Same thing with your internist, and especially as we get into midlife, we may see our internist more or family medicine, whoever your PCP is. I think that in truth, we also carry around this stigma and this, as you said, embarrassment, but it's really worse than that. It's a taboo to talk about it. And I really do mean it, that there is a gender bias about women's sexual pleasure And that goes back millennia because, in truth, men may have a concern that a woman could be having sex with all kinds of guys. And if she becomes pregnant but tells him it's his, he might be cuckolded and raise a baby that isn't his. If you think about Darwinian ideas that survival of the fittest doesn't mean in a fight. It means your genetic material surviving. And so your genetic material wouldn't survive if it's actually somebody else's baby that your partner is carrying. And so there's a lot of prohibitions that are religious prohibitions, that are cultural prohibitions, and those are all enculturated throughout our system. And you talked about ED drugs being a huge multi billion dollar industry. Well, it took us a massive amount of effort to get medications approved for hypoactive sexual desire disorder because of gender bias in the FDA, in the newspapers, uh, and media. So we need to have intimate knowledge of ourselves and. We may be hesitant to do that because of these prohibitions that I mentioned, but in reality, it's difficult to expect your partner to know it if you don't know it. So I think it's really important for us to talk about it, to explore ourselves, and by talking about it, it could be with your partner, it could be with your girlfriends, it could be with uh, your provider. And maybe it's all of those. I will tell you that an organization with which I've been associated for a very long time is called ISWISH, or the I-S-S-W-S-H, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And if you go to their website, There's information about find a provider. That's great. What I was going to ask you is, I mean, I'm so happy that that's happening. But,
0: you know, what else are we doing to make this less of a stigma in our society? I also, I mean, this is even what I talked about with Dr. Cohen, even when it comes to perimenopause or PMDD, providers aren't very knowledgeable on this and, and kind of push it aside as a, not a real thing. And I I think with this, um, you know, I I think you occasionally now see like a a female, uh, a sexual dysfunction commercial here and there, but what is being done currently in society to make this less of a stigma?
1: Well, I wish I could tell you that there's a concerted effort, but I can tell you that it's going to take a massive amount of change. A number of years ago, when George, Bush was in, George W. Bush was the president. Literally, the NIH was sort of told we're not going to support any studies that are looking at sexual functioning. It seemed in particular female sexual dysfunction because there was a lot already out there about erectile dysfunction in particular. But now there's a lot of about other kinds of male sexual dysfunction, too. We need to speak up for ourselves. But I think the more that we look online, the more that we examine what we're thinking and talk about it with our friends, with our partners, et cetera, we will see that change over some time. And I think also utilization of some of the available treatments is also important. One thing I didn't mention about the FDA is that they have been reluctant to say that vaginal estrogen, which you probably heard about from Lee Cohen, is safer than systemic estrogen in terms of things like increased breast cancer risk and blood clots and things like that. The data are out there. They're constrained by a variety of things, including not wanting to give one pharmaceutical product, a leg up on another. But quite honestly, if you look at women who've had breast cancer, for example, they're usually on medications even after their acute treatment, which may impact on their sense of self if they've had surgery or radiation or other things, or just the sense that their body has betrayed them. But then they're on aromatase inhibitors, which definitely cause arousal problems, genital dryness, painful intercourse, etc. And those are women who shouldn't be taking systemic estrogens. And there are some studies showing that vaginal estrogen works for them. There's also another drug out called Prasterone, which is DHEA, which is the precursor to testosterone. And what you should understand is that there's this precursor, DHEA, which then converts to testosterone, which then converts to estrogen. So we, we really should be thinking that, yes, these precursors also matter for us. And this is a vaginal insert that also helps. And then there's an oral medication that is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, which doesn't bind to breast tissue estrogen, And that also may be helpful for painful intercourse related to um, menopause.
0: I'm so happy to know that there are things. I, I honestly, this sounds very naive. I didn't even realize that there was anything. That's how little I have heard from anyone or anywhere. So I'm so happy that you just spoke about those.
1: There's also two products now available. And this is what I was talking about, really having to fight at the FDA for I can't say it's parody, but at least approval of drugs for the most common sexual dysfunction in women, which is hypoactive sexual desire disorder that's acquired. Um, that is, you previously had adequate desire, now you have loss of desire or complete lack of desire, and that's distressing to you. And there are two different drugs, and you probably saw in the news, because I think it was 2015, that flabanserin, the brand name is Addy was approved, and this works to deal with inhibition on our sexual interest and arousal. So sexual functioning works by a balance between excitatory elements, which is usually dopamine, norepinephrine, and sex steroids, and inhibitory elements, which are things like uh, serotonin, which we see often with antidepressants and things like that, but also chronic opioid use chronic non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug use, which is things like ibuprofen or or things like that, and also chronic or regular use of cannabis. So people don't think about all those things, and alcohol for sure chronically negatively impacts on, on sexual arousal to start with, but that often spreads to other areas. So, flabanserin is a drug that reduces those serotonin inhibitions because it has two actions at two serotonin receptors that counteract those inhibitory elements causing low desire and arousal. And then um, you take that every single day, take it at bedtime because it actually is a little bit sedating, which most women don't mind. And then the other is an injectable. So it's in an auto injector, like an EpiPen. So you just basically have to touch it to the skin or hold it to the skin and it will inject the amount in. And that's used 45 minutes before sexual activity in women with HSDD who want to have desire for that event. So that's more event related. What that does is it uses uh, melanocortin stimulation, which enhances dopamine and norepinephrine effects, which are excitatory. So it
0: makes you horny. And then does it also help with orgasm or is that something different?
1: Well, the whole thing about orgasm really is, is that if you have adequate desire and you have arousal, which a lot of women with HSTD have adequate arousal. So it can be sort of a red herring to them that, well, I still get aroused, but they don't want to have sex. But if you have adequate desire, you have adequate arousal, then that is more conducive to orgasmic function. We've tried to look at medications to help with orgasm, and they've really not been terribly successful to this point. But I think if we start demanding more, then that certainly is possible. It'll be interesting to see where, where that goes in the future. So we, we you've talked
0: a little bit about causes. Uh, I know that sometimes it could be a psychiatric condition or medication. We talked about hormones,
1: perimenopause. Is there anything there that I didn't cover that you would like to add to that? Well, I think that there are a number of medical conditions that can contribute to sexual dysfunction of, of a number of types. Things like diabetes. We see a market increase because that's acting negatively on the vasculature, which is required for arousal. You've got to have engorgement essentially in the in the genitals to have lubrication, and and that has to do with appropriately functioning vascular systems and also neuroendocrine function. So diabetes is an endocrine disorder, and so it also impacts on neurological function, which also influences those neurotransmitters I mentioned. So you especially want to see norepinephrine be stimulated because norepinephrine is the neurotransmitter of arousal in a general kind of way, right? Like fight or flight. But it's also the neurotransmitter of sexual arousal. And then dopamine is really a behavioral motivator. So it gets you to do something about sex and it also is pleasure enhancing. So those things may, in fact, be very important and be negatively affected by a condition like diabetes. Thyroid disease may also have an impact. Lots of neurological disorders can impact on the neurotransmitters I mentioned. And then a combination of those is probably doubly deadly. The other thing I would mention is relationship issues. So, when I first started doing work in hypoactive sexual desire disorder and we were trying to study this, we developed some questionnaires that I mentioned the decreased sexual desire screener but there are others that we developed and that was helpful in terms of trying to determine prevalence of these problems. But in many respects, one of the things we needed to do was also look at distress. Because distress is one of those things that we often don't voice. And I want to put some words out there so that people know what I'm talking about. Because distress is so vague. Most women will go, well, I don't know, even know what that means. But it means things like feeling frustrated, feeling a sense of loss of what you had before, and associated grief with that. We also see a sense of sexual incompetence, like something's wrong with me. I am not who I was before. People get angry about it. They feel sad or have sorrow about that. They feel generally dissatisfied and they also worry that their partner may leave them or stray or just be unhappy. And those things do happen. So women who have hypoactive sexual desire disorder often change their behaviors. So that their partner isn't approaching them for sex as frequently because they either then have to go ahead and have sex when they really aren't interested or they um, turn their partner down. And our partners, especially people who've been our partners for a long time, are aware of these kinds of changes. And what I will tell you is part of what we've also learned is the partner often believes that. And it's usually been a male partner, We've, but there's absolutely no difference no matter who your partner is, whether they're the same sex, a transgendered individual or whatever. Those factors all seem to operate in sort of the same way, especially in terms of desire.
0: Do you know how many women I know, friends I know that are like, I just take one for the team like once a week or twice a week so that I can like go away with my girlfriends or just have him in a good mood or and I just kind of sit there and let him do his thing and they're not enjoying it. They're not having an orgasm. It's it's sad actually. And and it's become that's become a norm of conversation with women, at least at my age, I feel that that they are feeling like, yeah, I'll just, you know, take one for the team. (laughs) You know, instead of instead of actually satisfying their sexual side. And then, you know, women reach out. To other places for sexual desire or uh, women don't care at all. And they just, you know, as long as their husband's having an orgasm. But I I think that that leads to almost feeling resentful as a woman. I, I, you know, I have friends who say like, I, I have to give a blowjob in order to get X, Y, or Z. I'm like, well, what? You know, that's not how that's not how a marriage should be. They don't care. You know, they're like, well, you know, I gotta
1: do what I gotta do. I think that's true, but it also doesn't get at the partner's view of what's going on because they're not dumb. They know there's something not there because the emotional intimacy is lost. So you can have the physical intimacy, whether or not it leads to orgasm. And actually a lot of women with HSDD do get physically aroused with direct stimulation and do have an orgasm, but they still don't want to have sex. So it's really not about having an orgasm. It has to do with the way their brain is working in terms of, their interest and sustaining that through sexual activity too, I would say. So what partners have said is, yeah, I could tell something was wrong or she turns me down. I think she doesn't find me attractive anymore. I think she uh, might be interested in somebody else and maybe is cheating. She doesn't love me anymore. Those are the kinds of things that partners are saying to themselves but not necessarily communicating. And that's why communication about sex and interest and things like that is very important. If he has erectile dysfunction, they're going to talk about it because, you know, it's out there. But for women, almost everything is internal, whether it's our brain, whether it's our vagina, whether it's uh, our own sense of, Uh, love and attachment, which also, you know, happens with an orgasm, right? There's a release of oxytocin, this is true for men and women both, that makes us feel like relaxed and close to the person who brought that about. And yet those things end up all being lost if we decrease our sexual activity, if we don't try to make that work, or we don't at least talk about it. And then figure out that no, it's not something wrong with her, this is a condition that maybe can be addressed. I've seen women use some of these potential treatments I mentioned, and it totally changes their life you know they stop going to bed early and being asleep before their partner comes to bed or they stop doing a whole bunch of chores in the evening so that their partner goes to bed and is asleep before they come to bed they might stop kissing their partner even casually because that might lead the partner to think that they're interested in sex all those things are affected and those can change back When she becomes interested in sexual activity. Again, testosterone is a product that is also used. I didn't mention this, but it's off because it's off label. Bupropion, the antidepressant that works on dopamine and norepinephrine, that's also used sometimes to enhance excitatory neurotransmitters. So there are things that could be done that might be helpful depending on the individual woman that could lead to changes in her desire that lead to some restoration in her relationship too, and the emotional intimacy, which I think, you know, I, I'm going to keep talking about that. But in many ways, women are very, very interested in that. And we shouldn't discount men's interest in that either.
0: No, not at all. I actually, um, you just triggered this kind of funny story, but, uh, uh, this is years ago. A friend of mine uh, has a husband who, who really desires sex quite often. And, uh, she knew he was out having a few drinks with friends and she was in bed on her iPad and she heard him coming in the front door. So she quickly put her iPad down and pretended to be asleep because she knew that he was going to come in and want to have sex. And the light was still on, and she didn't realize it. Like, like she just had it open, and he was uh-huh. like, "I see the light on. You're awake." <laughs> you know, it's just, a- she's like, "Damn it, damn it!" <laughs> Sorry, just what it was a funny story that um, is. is g- exactly what we're talking about. But I do think intimately. I, I think that it is something. I think even if you've been with somebody for many years, sometimes it's almost a more awkward conversation to have at that stage of a relationship especially if you've gone that long just being one way if you've gone a long time being one way and then all of a sudden you're bringing this up it's like what because maybe you've been afraid to address it i had a a, a question from a listener who um i praise her for sharing this with me because this is it's not an easy thing to say but she said I don't know that I've ever had an orgasm. I'm not quite sure what it feels like. I've, I've felt good. I felt like I've gotten to the point of orgasm, but maybe
1: didn't fully follow through. Uh, what do I do about this? This is not an uncommon statement. And as I mentioned, especially early in our sexual lives, or if we have been with one partner, because you get into a routine or habits, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all, that where there's not a change up or excitement or things like that, one of the other things that happens with women is they can lose their focus because we could start to be excited and get up to that point and then something happens. Like you, you hear the kids in the other room or suddenly you have a thought, which this sounds weird while you're having sex, but you have a thought that, oh, my gosh, I've got to take the kids to this and that tomorrow, and I need to then go to the store. And I and you start into this cascade of intellectual kinds of thoughts that are not in the moment. And also, some women have difficulty relaxing and therefore being in the moment and accepting of what comes. So they're sort of trying to hold on and maintain some sense of control, which you know, basically an orgasm is not control. Right. And so many women like control. (laughs) So that that was a
0: great thing that you just brought up. Everything you just said is so relevant. Is there any study, um, I would imagine women with ADHD have a harder time achieving orgasm.
1: So I'm not aware of a study in which uh, people have specifically looked at that. We actually looked at in women who had premenstrual dysphoric disorder and or just PMS, premenstrual syndrome or symptoms. And what we found was that actually a lot of things about our sexual interest and function change across the menstrual cycle. And some of that probably has to do with estrogen, it has to do with peaks of testosterone, and it also has to do with oxytocin, which fluctuates across the menstrual cycle. And some people are looking at oxytocin as a definitely off-label treatment uh, or intervention for sexual dysfunctions too. So what we found was that right around ovulation is when we saw a big increase in desire a big increase in uh, ability to be aroused an increase in the ability to achieve an
0: orgasm i always know when i'm when i'm ovulating because of that i always know and and and, and someone once told me that was that was god's way of getting our bodies ready to get pregnant which is really interesting
1: i think it is teleologically yeah. for that purpose yeah because You know, when you look at cultures, they actually forbade sexual contact, a lot of them forbade sexual contact during your menstrual period, and then maybe even for a week after that. So that gets you right up to ovulation, which it makes sense that you would want a woman way back when to get pregnant every time she has sex, essentially. One, for that Darwinian reason that I told you about, but two, because... We needed to procreate because infants died. It was much harder to survive given infections and all kinds of other things. If you think about it, that makes some sense. So if you want to have sex, and you do, and you have an orgasm with that person, then that sets you up to feel closer to that person and maybe have a sense of security with that person. And then you stay with them and you get pregnant. And there's even been stuff about... Um, greater likelihood of being pregnant, obviously, of getting pregnant when you're not stressed or worried or fearful or all these other kinds of things. And so that, that sense of being with a partner that you want to be with because your desire is up, all of that might very well get you pregnant. And actually, some of those things are negatively affected by birth control pills, especially monophasic birth control pills, which you know, keep you on the same level all the way across because that's not how we normally function. Oh, gosh, that's what
0: I'm on right now, which is literally resolved my PMDD. There you <laughs> so, go. So I may have to give up one thing for the other because because I've never felt better in my life.
1: <laughs> so It doesn't always happen, but there are some factors that are genetic that are related to that. So if a young woman has a problem that develops related to her sexual functioning when she's on birth control especially if she started very young oral birth control I'm talking about mostly it's not as clear about vaginal birth control or patches but maybe that that too but if she develops a problem because she started early on birth control and then has been on it for 10 years by the time she's like 25 years old then those are things that maybe could be looked at and and a change in her birth control might be effective. But you're absolutely right. It treats PMDD to be on a monophasic birth control and stay on that. Even not have a period every month, right? To maybe uh, take it for three months before you have a period or six months or a year. And that's all been studied. Women who have PMDD don't want to have sex right before their menstrual period. They're irritable. They're depressed. They're anxious. They're labile. There are all these other kinds of things. That's why I think PMDD has survived because it actually really does sort of force you into sex when you're most likely to get pregnant.
0: Right, That's so true. That's your that's your that's your good week. Although for a lot of women with PMDD, me included, the, the the few days around ovulation are are hard days too. So so let's talk about psychological factors because I would imagine that plays a lot. I know we we touched on that a little bit, but I think it gets more deep than what we've already touched on.
1: Yeah, these are the things that sort of accumulate that we don't. Necessarily recognize maybe contributing negatively to our sexual lives. You know, we've bought into what the media has put out about what look, what body type, what behaviors are sexy. And unfortunately, those are all fake when we see them in the media. And yet, we believe it as if it's not airbrushed, as if somebody in a, in a film actually like has an orgasm before the guy even touches her from across the room because it's just so intense between them or, or whatever. And that actually provides also really unreasonable expectations about what we might have in our own sexual lives. But this issue about, you know, body shaming is all over the place or has been. And these are things that we internalize and often feel like i want the lights out uh, because i don't want my partner to see me or because i feel uncomfortable and honestly in my practice anytime a woman has actually asked her partner about you know how they feel about her body the woman has been dead wrong about what the partner thinks or how the partner feels about that And in fact, among the HSD women patients, one of the things that their partners also said is, I can't understand why she doesn't wanna have sex with me. She is so sexy. I'm so attracted to her. And that's another reason that they start to feel bad about themselves. So body image is really an issue. Also after things like surgery, or especially after breast cancer, Um, which is so common now in the United States. And luckily, it's being diagnosed and effectively treated in so many more women. Or after having HPV and potentially having abnormal cells from a pap smear or in the cervix and things like that, those also may impact on our sexual self-image. I think life stressors also play a huge role, and we tend to not be able to categorize or compartmentalize those things away and participate in sex. I mean, I think that's one thing that men do really pretty well, is that they can leave the work there, they can leave uh, the concerns about the world, and be in the moment for sexual activity. And that really makes some sense, again, from this reproductive goal that might have existed a long time ago that is is really not terribly relevant at least in the U.S. at this point. But I think one of the other things is that if one person is just really focused on the sex and is only going to be paying attention to that, way back when, that might have been a risky situation, especially if both of them were in that moment because strangers could have come or marauders or whatever else or somebody else even in your tribe could come in and potentially harm you. So women... Don't compartmentalize, and I I don't want us to feel bad about that, but our life stressors are are in our minds even, even when we're participating in sex. And I think that prioritizing what we think is most important and when it's most important may help us manage that a bit.
0: I I was just going to say, I think it's really important that, and hopefully everybody has a good therapist because I think everybody needs a therapist, but I think it's really important that if this is an issue, you're, you're addressing it with somebody who specializes in sexual health as well as a psychologist and touching on any past experiences, which I'm sure have a massive
1: contribution. I do think a history of sexual abuse or trauma can be... A problem when your, your sexual life is consensual and can be reactivated at times. So I'm talking about literal sexual abuse or some kind of sexual trauma, especially if it's in childhood, if it's chronic, if it's by a family member, and if there's penetration involved. Those are sort of the worst factors for later impact on sexual functioning. And then uh, when that happens, I definitely recommend therapy. That is the most appropriate way to address that and, and not saying anybody knows anybody um, where that might have happened, but it's really important for that to be worked through, especially even if it has been worked through before to some degree, it's potentially reactivated by things like pregnancy or some other event that isn't exactly what happened there, but re triggers it.
0: So obviously, you know, we've talked about psychological factors. I think the last part to discuss is really management of all of this and uh, what, what your advice would be on that subject.
1: So a group of sexual medicine experts that are members of ISWISH, the group I mentioned before, worked on a process of care for both premenopausal women and postmenopausal women. And there are slight differences, but honestly, that's sort of an artificial distinction as determined by the FDA because sexual desire in particular is really similar for women and men both. So I'm going to say something that may be surprising to people, but men also have hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And it's not as common as we see in women, but still it it does happen, and it's not infrequent, I would say, and we need to understand that these physiological processes are are kind of similar. So anyway, I think it's an artificial distinction between pre- and postmenopausal women, except as it relates to potentially using testosterone. But the assessment is pretty similar. Trying to figure out, does a woman have low sexual desire. Did she have desire that was adequate for her before? Is she distressed about that? Does she have other problems? Because often, as you said, if you don't have significant desire anymore, arousal is diminished. And then as a result, people might have orgasmic dysfunction. They all just feed. It's almost like it's circular because they feed back on each other there. But trying to make a diagnosis or having a provider who helps make a diagnosis is important. And then there's a lot of education. So a lot of women don't know that they may experience more genital arousal problems with the menopausal transition. And also depression is a common comorbidity with HSDD, for example. And that happens more at the menopause also, or in the perimenopause. And we get put on medicines that may contribute. So there might be all these other factors. And I mentioned modifiable factors before. Those are then important to try to change. And sometimes that might be the relationship. If you're with somebody who has completely changed or isn't who you thought they were, if they're abusive, if they're disinterested if they put you down if you have resentments about all that those are things that should be addressed first because honestly if there's a relationship problem and we try to do psychotherapy to treat the sexual dysfunction or use medications in a way that's it's totally backwards because if your desire goes up but you still have these problems in your relationship you're still not going to have a happy sex life so we try to then educate people about what you could do. So for example, lubricants may be helpful or trying to communicate more effectively with your partner about what it is you want or what's going on with you may also be helpful. And education a lot of times is a relief for women to start with. Like, I'm not the only one. I can do something about this. And I, I feel strongly that women can take charge of, examining themselves. And that could be worries. It could be resentments. It could be shame. It could be trauma. It could be any number of things that I think we can look at and try to take charge of in therapy with our partners, et, et cetera. And then if those things are all managed or don't seem to be the contributing factor, then I think there may be these medication treatments or sex therapy And I mentioned for HSDD, flabanserin, bremelanotide, and testosterone, although we we mostly don't give testosterone to reproductive age women because if she were to become pregnant with a female child, then being on testosterone might cause problems in the sexual development in utero of that child. So sometimes we do it if people are on adequate birth control or they have had... Uh, other things. But those are factors that we try to keep in mind for specific women. But meds may ultimately be helpful for women. And that's another thing I don't think women should feel shame about. Guys are taking ED drugs a lot. When those came out, I will tell you, this is a funny story, I think. When uh, Sildenafil or Viagra came out, I ended up having a lot of Older women, and I don't mean old, like sixty or seventy, who really had not been having sex much at all for a number of years because their partner had erectile dysfunction. And their partner suddenly shows up and he's got an erection and he's like, Hey, let's do it. And she's (laughs) like, Where did that come from? And what is going on? And then he And how do you do it again? (laughs) And you know, they're very upset because he went and got Viagra without talking about it with him, he went and took it and he had these expectations of her and there there was sort of no prep for her or discussion with her about what did she really want. And I think that communication matters. It doesn't matter if you've been together for 50 years. One of the things we do know is that people who feel like they had a good or adequate sex life when they're young, they continue to feel that as they get older. If you're not feeling that, we might need to look and see if you do have one of these sexual dysfunctions and what we can do to help. I think we can take charge of our, our lives, but it really is up to us. Uh, your provider may not bring it up. Your partner may not bring it up. You need to.
0: In conclusion, with that last comment, what would be your suggestion as the first resource for a woman to go to? Is it is it ISWISH? Is that what you mentioned uh, as a starting place or... If somebody doesn't feel they have a doctor that they're comfortable talking to, where would you say to begin?
1: So it's reasonable to look to ISWISH. You can go online, like I said, and get the decreased sexual desire screener and at least screen for HSDD. When you go to your gynecologist, though, if you are having painful intercourse, you should tell your gynecologist and they should be asking you that. And if they're not, you need to bring it up and not when their hand is on the door ready to leave after the exam, because that's a surprise to them. And they're not likely to be very receptive to helping you when you do bring it up. They can say, you know, we need more time to talk about this. Let's set up another appointment that kind of thing. Or if they don't do that, one, you might need a different provider or two, look to some organization like ISWISH and see if you can find somebody with expertise in this area who's obviously going to be more comfortable talking about it in your geographical area. And I know people who've flown across the country to talk to providers who have expertise in their level of concern. Well, now we have telemedicine. So that's
0: That's great. And do you see patients virtually or are you not doing that at all? So we
1: are seeing patients virtually, but we are restricted by state regulations and by our malpractice insurance that we cannot do telemedicine visits outside of the state of Virginia.
0: Ah, so if you're in Virginia, you're very lucky. That you have, Dr. Clayton. Um, But uh, thank you so much for coming today. This was this was. I cannot tell you how informational, interesting, wonderful. This is going to help so many women. I really hope to hear from my listeners after this. Uh, I hope you'll all let me know. Never be embarrassed with me. I am one of these people that anybody off the street tells things too. Um, so I'm, I'm a vault and I'd love to hear from you. And if you need any help, uh, with direction, Dr. Clayton, would you, um, would you be open to me contacting you if somebody needs a a resource or, um, something
1: else? Sure. Yes. And uh, another resource I think is a book I wrote. It's called satisfaction. And that originally came from as in, I can't get no. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's called Satisfaction, Women, Sex, and the Quest for Intimacy. And a lot of the things I've talked about are in there. There's a lot about relationships and how that influences sexual lives and also our sexual lives and how that can um, be reflected or impact on our relationships. And then all these other factors that I talked about, too. And I didn't talk about specifically sex during pregnancy, sex postpartum, early sex, and how that may impact on our view of ourselves or our functioning and then perimenopausal and later what we want and how we how we can take control of our sexual lives. If you can't get it on Amazon, then contact me and I can get it a copy sent to you. Oh, it looks like it's on Amazon. Is it on Audible yet? No. It's been translated into another a number of other languages, um, but that was a while back that that originally happened.
0: Well, just FYI, I just started narrating books. So if you ever need someone, let me know. Great. <laughs> for, for Audible, <laughs> a little side gig. But I, I know a lot of women my age prefer to listen to books because they're um, just too busy to sit and read books anymore. But I have your book and I want to apologize that I have not had a chance to read it, but I am going to read it. And because it is sitting there with uh, many other books that I have to read from um, other podcasts, I'm very interested in reading it. And so I'm really looking forward to it. And I apologize that I didn't bring that up. Um, so I'm so happy that you did. It's called Satisfaction. Women's Sex and the Quest for Intimacy by Anita Clayton and Robin Cantor Cook. You can buy it on Amazon. So um, definitely go pick up that book because Dr. Clayton, you're wonderful. And I'm so happy that Dr. Cohen introduced us. And I thank you again for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to give yourself permission and know that you are not alone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reviews are always appreciated. And you can reach me by email at it's not a crisis at Gmail, Instagram, it's not a crisis podcast. And please join our Facebook group as well. Until next time, just remember, it's not a crisis.